Today, we're going to read about, learn about the Parsha. The Parsha of the week is Parsha Truma. Truma is about building the portable sanctuary in the desert. That's what it's all about. God tells Moses he wants from the Jewish people to build them a home on earth. That's what he wants. And the parsha start, the name Truma means a donation, a, a portion to give, to give something to God to build the temple, to build the portable temple. It's called the sanctuary, the Mishkan. And, and that's what we, we are going to learn about. Now we are going to learn the first Rashi almost in the parsha. See, Rashi is a commentary, is the most basic commentary, the most famous commentary, the best commentary ever came to the Bible and to the Talmud. Rashi lived around 900 years ago in France, and he wrote a very precise commentary. Every word is accounted to, and short and to the point. There is many more commentaries, but nobody ever reached to the level of Rashi. The Rebbe for many years, every Shabbat, used to take a Rashi and analyze it, teach it. What was, the, what was Rashi's problem? What was, what was bothering Rashi? What was Rashi needed to explain in the verse that it was not clear enough that Rashi had to explain it? Then Rashi, if everything is clear, Rashi doesn't say an explanation. If he says an explanation, it means that he, something is not clear that needs to be explained. That first we learn the, the verse, then the Rashi, then the Rebbe's questions and answers about the Rashi. Rashi's name was Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. His father's name was Yitzchak. In the olden days, he was called, even I think in Russia, not too long, long ago, you were named after your father. Shlomo was his name. Yitzchaki was his father's name. It was Shlomo ben Yitzchak. He had only daughters, and his daughters helped him to write the, to write the commentary. Rab, there is a hope. Rashi had only daughters, and he became the most famous Rashi, and his grandchildren were great, great rabbis. And your daughters can be just like the daughters of Rashi. Even a half of it would be good enough, right? <laughs> he was also busy with making wine and other things. In any case, let's read the source number one. Steve, go ahead. God spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelites and have them bring me an offering. Take my offering from everyone whose heart impels him to give. This is the offering you should take from them. Gold, silver, copper, greenish blue wool, dark red wool, crimson wool, fine linen and goat's hair, red dyed ram's skins, tachash skins and acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the sweet smelling incense and sardonyxes and other precious stones for the ephod and breastplate. They shall make me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. This is the basic story. God says, I want the Jewish people to donate all the good stuff to build a temple. To, you need to build a temple. You need not only money at that time, you needed stuff, you needed uh, material. And God says all of these things they should build. Okay, uh, Rob, continue the Rashi. Keisha would. Where did they get acacia wood in the desert? Rabbi? The question is, where do they get wood in the desert? You'll be, you'll be gold, silver, they took from them from Egypt. But wood, just long trees, where, where did they get wood from the desert? Where did they get it? 
Rabbi Tanhuma explained, our forefather Jacob foresaw through divine inspiration that the Israelites were destined to build a tabernacle in the desert, and he therefore brought cedars to Egypt and planted them and directed his children to take them along when they would leave Egypt. Wow. Rabbi Tanhuma, Tanhuma is a medrash. There is a medrash Tanhuma. It's a rabbi that his name is Tanhuma. And he says that the Jewish people, Jacob, when he came down to Egypt, he bought with them occasion wood. And he replanted them in Egypt. And he directed his children that when one day they will leave Egypt, they should take the wood outside of Egypt to build a temple with it. Where is in the history, like, we know Joseph was kind of, uh, he could see what's happening, he can interpret it, whatever. Where, like, else uh, says about Jacob that he was, uh, could foresee some stuff? I mean, first of all, Jacob had revelations. Yeah, it's his grandchildren, remember? Yeah, it's all, it's, all, it's all prophecies, and he had many visions from God. Remember, Joseph was only the son of Jacob. And Jacob had the dream too, the dream with the ladder that he went up to heaven, that he saw angels going up and down, right? And it was a sign that it's going to be, that they will be exiled and God will maybe be a connection. And it's representing many things, the, the Jacob's ladder. Yeah, but this is a big one. <laughs> this is a big one. Just this... to make it even more excited, you're right, it is a big one. Um, um, okay, Michael, you read source number two. Jacob began the journey, taking all the, his possession. He arrived in Beersheba. Why did he go there? Rabbi Naham, Nahman said he went to cut down the, uh, the cedars which had been planted by Abraham, his grandfather, in Beersheba. You hear what's going on here? His grandfather, Abraham, planted in Be'er Sheva trees that for, the, the, for, for, for the future. And Amen. Jacob, on the way to Egypt, is taking with them the wood, replanting them in Egypt, and tells his children when they leave Egypt, they should take the wood with them. That's a medrash. It's a story that went over from generation to generation. Yeah. Abraham knew that he needed the trees because it, it, there was there's some mention of it somewhere that I read. Some mention to Abraham? To Abraham that why he planted really? those trees. Could be, maybe. I, I remember also something, but I don't remember what. I remember something. If you can find it for me, I would love to see it because I also remember that this, I remember this marriage and I remember it in top that was even able and bought it from somewhere or from something. I remember something also, but I don't, I couldn't, I, I didn't look for it. But if you can find it, I would love I it to see it. In any case, now, this is what the marriage says. The real question is, why should Rashi bring a medrash? Rashi usually explains the little meaning of the verse. Rashi tries to be as simple as possible, as to, to go to be as attached to the literal meaning as possible. Not to bring midrash, medrashes, that the tree that is born in Beersheba in the bottom to Egypt and from Egypt. Why is Rashi looking for a medrash to explain the literal meaning? What was the problem? He's just saying, he asked him for occasion word. I don't care from where they bought it. Why Rashi needs this whole thing? Let's read the text. The, the, the Remy's question. Um, continue, um, Michael. 
In the beginning of this week Torah portion, God lists the items needed for the tabernacle. This, this is the offering you should take from them. Greenish blue wool, dark red wool, uh, crimson wool, fine linen, and goat's hair. Red dyed ram skins, tahash skins, and it's a strange word, occasion word. I also took me 20 years to learn it. Go ahead. Rashi comments, where did they get acacia wood in the desert? Rabbi Tahuma explained, our forefather Jacob foresaw uh, through divine inspiration that Israelites uh, were destined to build a tabernacle in the desert. And he, and he therefore brought cedars to Egypt and planted them and directed his children to take them along when they would leave Egypt. That's what we learned before. That's what the text says. That's what Rashi says. Continue. Rashi's commentary demands explanation. The suggestion that Jacob on his way to Egypt brought along cedar wood for the tabernacle, which be built 210 years into a future, is clearly homiletic explanation. But why What's is- What's homiletic explanation means? What's in English means homiletic? I can only guess, I don't know the words, but it means probably like amazing or unbelievable or whatever. I think no. it just means story, right? It's, so it's, it's, I mean, what you said? It says the art of preaching or writing sermons. I don't know if that makes it. Um, Rob, what you said? I think it was just a story. There, it's just no. Something. It means it's a, it's a it's a Gallic interpretation. It means it comes from history. It comes from, from tradition, but it's not the literal meaning. That's what he wants to say. It's not the literal meaning. Go ahead, but. But why is he compelled to interpret the verse uh, homiletically? We can suggest a far simpler explanation. The Israelites, Israelites purchased acacia wood from merchants of the surrounding nations. You see, the question is a good question. Where they found <laughs> a, a, a acacia wood? But we'll say they, even when they were in the desert, we need to understand when the Jews were in the desert, they were not in the Sahara Desert with a thousand miles from each place. They were close to surrounding countries, nations. They were in the desert because nobody can bother them. They're in the desert and they're on their own. But if they needed some emergency, they can go to their neighboring the, um, country, nation, and buy from them something. That's not, it wasn't beyond the reach. It was possible. Then where they find the cashew wood, they went to buy somewhere. Why Rashi needs to come to bring from the Medrash, to dig up the Medrash, that the Jewish people had, had wood in Egypt. And Jacob bought the wood. They bought the wood, whatever they want. What mean why? They, 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 found, they found a way, the Jews are very capable. They found a way to get, find wood. They're very capable to, do, to accomplish what they need to accomplish. Olga, you want to continue? Yes. Uh, uh, secondly, Rashi usually omits the name of the rabbi who taught um, the explanation. When he mentions a person by name, it is because knowing the name will help us understand some difficulty in the passage. If so, in our case, why does Rashi tell us that this explanation was proposed by Rabbi You see, there is many times Rashi brings explanations from the Medrash, many times, from the Talmud, on the Medrash. He never quotes this rabbi said that this rabbi says he, he waves it into, into his commentary 
And it's a part of his commentary, he finished. Who cares who said it? Whenever he brings a name of who said it, must be a reason. If not, he wouldn't quote his name. Because he was so precise, Rashi was so short, saving every word. If it, if it wasn't a must to bring Rashi, if Rashi did not have an intention, why he brings the names of the, the name of the rabbi who said it, he wouldn't, he wouldn't quote which rabbi said it. He would say the whole story, Jacob brought the wood from Egypt and the Jewish people brought it, finished the name later. There is the, the Rashi, where Rashi took his commentary. Rashi didn't make up, he said, sat down 900 years ago in, in France and made up a commentary, drink wine and made up a commentary. He, he knew the whole Talmud by heart and the Medrash and everything. And he looked from all the commentaries that the Talmud and the Medrash gives to the verse in the Bible. He took the most, the commentary that makes sense at the most literal level. He chose from the commentaries, the most literal commentary. Sometimes he had to combine two commentaries, but he didn't make up his own commentary. Really, when Rashi did not have a commentary from the Talmud, he says, I think that this is the commentary. Whenever it's his own commentary, he says it clear. Sometimes he says, Libi or Merli, my heart tells me. But whenever he doesn't say, my heart, tell, my heart tells me, sometimes he says, I don't know. You know, it's not embarrassing to say, I don't know. In today's generation, everybody knows everything. You ever saw a Jew ever is wrong? I never met him, me, me included. <laughs> Nobody's ever wrong. Rashi says, I don't know. Nothing wrong with saying I don't know. That whenever he says the name of the rabbi, he has something there. There is a reason why he said it. And now, um, Olga, continue with this. Uh, this is from a book that was written about the rules of Rashi. What are, how Rashi wrote his commentary, the results, anybody wrote a commentary, wrote a book, in what, what are the rules he based on? Most these rules are, are, were collected from the Rebbe's teaching, who was for 25 years teaching Rashi every week. And he put many, many, many hours on teaching this. And he, he, and he crystallized many rules of Rashi. Go ahead, read this. This commentary is literal. Rashi's goal is to explain the literal meaning of the text. In his own words, I have only come to explain the straightforward meaning of the scripture. See, um, Rashi, sorry, Rashi, there he says he comes to say the straightforward of the scripture. In other places, Rashi says, I am here to teach a five-year-old child. I want that the five-year-old boy who goes to Heidel should be able to understand the text. I am teaching a five-year-old child. Rashi didn't try to teach the big scholars and the big hochems. Today, there is no scholar in the world who doesn't learn Rashi, and doesn't start with the Rashi. What Rashi says, you know, the hardest thing is to teach a five-year-old boy or girl, because you have to teach it in the most literal, literal meaning. You have to explain it, you have to give a good answer. You cannot say, oh, yes, understood, yeah, you should understand that. You cannot draw a cop, you have to give a good explanation. That was Rashi's attitude to his teaching. Um, Oleg, you want to continue? Hold on. Olga or Oleg? Oleg. Okay. Also, he calls his interpretations from the teaching of the sages, Rashi, 
doesn't normally cite the name of the rabbi who proposes the explanation because his goal is to explain the literal meaning of the text. In other words, the interpretation must go out of the text itself and the name of the sage is therefore irrelevant. Well, he says, that's what you just learned before, that what, if he, he has an attention, uh, agenda to bring the meaning, the literal explanation. Who the rabbi said, why he said that doesn't make a difference to him. Why he requoted the name of the rabbi? That is the two questions. Why you to come to the whole monolithic story that they brought the wood from Egypt? Who cares? They bought it from the neighbors. And why he, called, he quoted the name of the rabbi who said it? Now we'll continue. Continue, Oleg. The answer lies in Torah's choice of words. Have them um, bring me an offering. Take my offering, the offering you should take from them. These verses seem to imply that all the necessary items were already among the um, possessions of the Israelites. Therefore, weren't items that needed to be obtained from other sources. Moses was merely commanded to take it from the people. If some items were not available within the community, they need to be obtained from the surrounding nations. The Torah should have given this command in more general terms, using words like obtain. Basically, yeah. what he's trying to say, then when Rash, when the Torah says they should take for me the donation, it means they have it in their pocket, they just need to give it. It's not something they have to go far away to collect it, to bring it, to fight, fetch it. It's something that's right next in, in the pocket. And the Torah says, be truly trauma. They should take for me a donation. Just take it out from the pocket and give it. It's not in the text from the Bible. It's not written anywhere like it was a big effort to bring, the, to bring it. Therefore? Therefore, Rashi reached the conclusion that all the items listed in the verse were available within the Israelite um, encampment and needed only to be taken from uh, when God said, says, have them bring me an offering. This is the offering you should take from them. It means that those items should be taken from among the possessions of the Israelite already owned. So Rashi must now explain how the Israelite actually owned those items and didn't need to obtain them from other sources. Basically, it says the Rashi needed to come up with this to bring from the Medrash this story because if they have it available, how is it that they have wood available? Who schleps to the desert wood? Regular wood. This, inter yeah. Go ahead. this interpretation that Jacob was uh, divinely inspired to bring uh, cedar wood to Egypt seems to be a uh, homiletic explanation. It seems unlikely that Jacob began preparation for the tabernacle 210 years before God commanded, bringing cedar wood to Egypt and planting them there so that they would grow to maturity and then be fashioned into a panel 10 cubits tall, it would be more logical to assume that the wood was simply purchased through merchants from uh, for the surrounding nations. I have a question. Yes. Uh, when it says Torah should give in such and such, like more detailed something. Like I have a problem with this. It's, it's, this is uh, like why somebody 
thousands of years after or whatever would say, hey, Torah was not um, uh, detailed enough. The Torah was not specific, not precise and whatever. Uh, isn't it just a person's opinion? Is it just kind of own uh, way of thinking? What? Because my problem with this, then some very, very important things in Torah, then uh, everyone can say, okay, Torah here and there, and we're talking about this specific case, about the wood and how it's done and uh, uh, not identify specifically uh, why and such. But then unimportant por uh, portions of Torah, everything is important, but at the same time, kind of very crucial ones, then someone will decide, hey, I will interpret it this way. This is my way of interpretation of this. The Torah should be this such and such. And this is very uh, slippery road, you know, to take. Like, because you can question everything in a Torah this way. Okay. That's a good question. Here, we are trying to understand, we are not questioning the Torah. Because we say if the Torah did not say it, obviously the Torah intends to say something that we need to figure this out. Okay, okay, but uh, we are not trying to question the Torah. We are trying to understand why the Torah chose made this choice of all. We are not saying if the Torah didn't say it, I make up another story. I want to try to make sense of the Torah's world as much as possible as a human being can. Yeah, I want, I'm, here, I'm here to make the Torah make, make the Torah more sense, not less sense. We're not questioning the Torah, therefore we come up with another story. We are trying to understand, we are the whole intention is to understand exactly what every word in the Torah wanted to be said. I but, understand. But, but we, you're right, you say that's a slippery road. Yes, there is rules how we, we interpret the Torah, yes. Because we're opening, we're opening the door for like, and I can see it everywhere because you're going to talk to some people they, and you would say, hey, that's how it's written in Torah. This is how that's what we should do. We should not do agree or we or not agree with this. And they could find something to you and point it to you like, hey, it doesn't say anything about it. This is just, uh, I want to do whatever I want to do. It doesn't say anything about it specifically, or I can interpret it this way. Okay, it's a good question. This is a very general question. Really, nothing is written in the Torah. We need to make take here a pause for a minute. The Torah, the literal, the way to read the literal Torah without any commentary, we cannot do with it anything. Nothing. If you would be on the moon, you know there is now thirty-five years since Sharansky, Anatoly uh, Sharansky. You know him, yes. he was in jail. When he was in jail and he learned himself his own thing from his own Bible and he did his own things, he, he got things very, very twisted <laughs> because he had only the Bible, he read from the Bible and he understood the way he wants to understand. It's no commentary that he got things very twisted. It's not only him. And I'll give you a few examples because it's something very fundamental and very basic and very important. The Bible itself needs calls for a commentary. Nobody can understand how to do things based on the Bible itself. For example, a bris, circumcision. 
It's written in the Bible that God told Abraham to circumcise his son. That's not written to circumcise his son. It's written God told them to, to take off his foreskin, but he didn't tell them which foreskin or which part of your body. Mm-hmm. Maybe of your nose, maybe of your ear. It's not written where. It's not written in the Bible what to cut. Simple. Until today, it's not written in the Bible. Then Moses repeated the mitzvah of circumcision and the Torah, it's written a few times, the mitzvah of circumcision. It's not written in what to cut. Then if somebody would learn only the Bible, he will not know what to cut because it's written to take off the foreskin of your heart, for example, later in the Bible. In one place, it means by Abraham, it means literally. When you're talking about the foreskin of your heart, it doesn't mean literally. It means homiletically. It means figuratively. We mean you should clean up your heart. You should become a better person. How I know when it's a literal meaning, when it's not a literal meaning, the rabbis have to teach me. Example number one. Example number two. We say in the Bible, you should in the Shema, you should tie, you should tie it on your hand and between your eyes, right? You should tie it as a sign on your hand and between your eyes. That's a mitzvah film. It's not written film. It's not even written what it's not even written what to put on your eyes, between your eyes, what to put on your hand. Now, if I learn only the Bible. Then what should I put it in my eyes? Now, whatever I'm going to put it in my eyes is a commentary. You understand? Let's say I decide to put a potato between my eyes. It's not written a potato. It's you, you go on again to the potato things. Right? It's all about okay. food. Okay, orange, orange, orange. Much better, orange. <laughs> no potatoes anymore. Finish. Oh, oh, we're following rabbinical Judaism, right? So it's the, that's the what it is. is. What I mean to say is, no, it's deeper than that. If anybody wants to observe the Bible, let's say he doesn't want rabbinical Judaism, he has to make up his own, Jude- his own, his own commentary. You understand? Whatever you're going to say is a commentary. It's not written in the text. Whatever you're going to quote, your foreskin is a commentary. It's not a text that you don't accept the rabbinic commentary. You know, there was a, a movement in Judaism who, need, who, who didn't believe. They said, we, we, we are little. We're not taking on only what the Bible says. You know what happened to these people? They had to write their own books. <laughs> because the Bible is demanding a commentary. It's like short, short writing, it's called. Right? Then you, you write in, in short notes. You cannot cannot live a life. Yeah, the Christians have no problem to learn the Bible because they don't have to observe it. Anybody who needs to observe what's written in the Bible don't know, doesn't know what to do with it. It's written in the Bible, you should slaughter the animals as I told you so. It's not written anywhere in the Bible how to slaughter the animals. But it's written to slaughter. You should slaughter it like I told you. Then now, what, no matter how you go, are you, where you're going to slaughter is a commentary. Then if you don't accept the, the Talmudic, the rabbi's commentaries, you're creating your own commentary. Now I'm telling you, why should I take your commentary? I better take a commentary that goes on for 3,000 years. You understand? Then every chochem who comes and says, I believe only what's written in the Bible. This is why I tell him that. Then I tell him, you want to know what's written in the Bible? That uh, observing family purity, that's written in the Bible. 
not to eat not kosher animals. That's written in the Bible. If you want to know what's written in the Bible, it's not written in the Bible. Not a, what, what to quote about mitzvah is not mentioned in the Bible. Kosher a Jewish wedding is not mentioned in the Bible. To uh, to chupen the whole thing. A Jewish burial it's not in the Bible. Pesach. Go ahead. Rabbi, how, how did the early rabbis figure all that out? How did they decide, figure it out, and interpret words that were somewhere? Okay, that's a good question. We'll take, for example, the bris. How did the rabbis came up with this idea that it's over there? Maybe not. You know, I didn't know it. They knew what Abraham did. He did to Isaac. He did to himself, then he did to Isaac, and Isaac did it to Jacob, gave a breeze to Jacob, and Jacob gave a breeze to his 12 children. They knew it from tradition. They knew what people did. That's how they knew it. How Abraham figured this out? Yeah. Because God told them, you should circumcise the foreskin of every male, that he understood that male and not female. It's a place that does the difference between a male and female. Yeah. It's written in, there's a message that says, a yet three friend, honor Eshkol Amamre, and um, the three friends, one, they, two of the two important, three important people, two of them told them, no, don't, don't do the breeze, it's dangerous, you'll be a joke, the enemies will attack you. And Mamre told them, go do it, Hashem wants you to do exactly this. Maybe even he told them, will, that what he thinks, what, what Hashem means. In any case, that's an example how we know what to do. I'll give you a second example. Moses, the mitzvah of film, you know when it was given? Five minutes before they left Egypt. Literally five minutes before they left Egypt. God said, hey, I have something very important to tell you. You should put on film. No, no. Let's say they were washed out of Egypt, getting settled, Mount Sinai, the desert. Moshe, say, Moshe comes and says, let's put on film. He says, Moshe, well, what is film? How are we going to do it? You should sign, put a sign between your eyes. What should the sign become? From orange? God forbid, not a potato, but from orange. Then what, what should be the sign be? That Moses said to teach him how to put in film. What is film? To make film, what to be written in the film, how to make it, everything. Then Moses told it to Joshua, and Joshua told it, in every Jew put in film. You know, they found in the, in the cave, in the, in the Judean desert in Israel, where they found the, what is called the Dead Sea Skulls, they found films now yeah. with parchments inside. Film is dating back at least 2000 years. We have physical film, more than 2000 years. How did they have the time and the wherewithal, the means to make all this the fill in and the, I mean, in the desert? In the middle of the desert, right? And while they were leaving, they had nothing to do. Exactly. <laughs> but while yeah. they were leaving, they were all getting. The, all the Jews were getting unemployment. They yeah. were all, all in the desert. It was like the time of Corona. Everybody yeah. was sitting home, doing nothing. They had plenty of time to do film. You're right, Michael, absolutely. Yeah, and, and how do you get the skills to hammer out a single piece of gold and all the cherubim and all the things? Yeah, listen, they didn't come out from the desert, stupid people. They were professionals. They were walked, they were, the Jewish people were very intelligent people. Well, clearly, but... I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, doing skills of uh, silver and gold. They were people who were slave work. They worked in a, in a, in shops, in the gold shops. And, and I mean, everybody was there. What about the the wood, though? Did they? How did they have the time to chop all the wood down 
to take with them while they're being, you know, while they're leaving Egypt. They're rushed out of Egypt. You know, some people were busy with their own Peklach and the Hasidic Jew were going to try and chop, chop the wood. What do you think? Everybody chopped the wood. They were, they were a hundred Meshugoyim, Chabad rabbis who went to chop the wood. The rest of them were busy with their families. My brother in China, he probably chopped the exact reincarnation of somebody who chopped the wood. It's pretty amazing. Then this is the old concept. Now that we know that the, that the rabbis are learning us how to teach the Bible, so the job of the rabbi, there is Michael, I wanted to, to, to hear it, the explanation. Okay. The, then the, the job of the rabbis is, they have, we have on one end a tradition, we have on the other end the Bible. The job of the rabbi is to link the tradition with the Bible. We learned last week about the mitzvah of not, I think we know the classes, not to mix milk, meat and meat. You don't eat milk and meat, right? What's written in the Bible? God, God, shine. How oh, you come to this one? Not mixing milk and milk. <laughs> and not only not mixing, not eating, not, not even cooking, not only not cooking, not selling, not benefiting from it. The rabbi said it's written three times in the Bible one for eating, one for uh, cooking, and one for uh, not benefiting from it. The rabbi didn't come up with the idea. You know, the one day Rabbi, Yohan, Rabbi Akiva showed up and says, I have an idea. We're not eating milk and meat. The Jews would stone him. What do you mean we come up with this idea? Where you came up from? They knew it from tradition. From Moses, Jews, Jews didn't eat milk and meat. And they, Moses told them that this is written in the Bible. And they just link the two, connect, the two the connections. They make the links. Many things they know from traditions and many things they come up on their own. But they're making the links, that's it. They're not inventing new ideas. That's the job of the rabbis. And that's in everything. They, you know, there's, they, no rabbi can just show up and, and come up with a new idea. Sometimes the rabbi said, for example, the, the milk and meat is a good example. Then the rabbis came at the time of the Talmud and they said, you know, Milk and meat, people don't eat, but many times they see somebody eating chicken meat with milk and they may, in from far, they might make a mistake that you can eat milk and meat. And they will come back home and the woman will say, I saw the rabbi eating milk and meat. And she start to do it at home. Therefore, they made a fence not to eat chicken meat with milk. Fine, it's a fence. That's the rabbi did it. At that time when they did it, not in every place it was accepted. Rabbi Yossi Aglili, who lived where? Uh, not in Kin, in, uh, in somewhere in the north, I forgot the name, I'm getting old. Uh, uh, in his place, they ate chicken meat with milk. But, uh, but when he died, it, it spread all over the rule. And since then, we don't eat chicken milk and meat. Then everything it's a uh, um, I think it was Rabbi Osegle, I almost sure. I'm trying to see um, in Sipori, I think it was in Sipori, now I remember. I think it was in Sipori. Yeah. Then in, in his city they didn't eat milk. Uh, they ate chicken and milk. But in other places it became a war. 
but there is nothing like people make up stories. Rashi, based on the Talmudic rules, how to interpret it every verse, is trying to interpret it. But you're right. If that's why when people come in some other classes, people tell me, I saw somebody saying this and this. I tell them who says it. It's a modern guy who came up with those stories, or it's somewhere from the tradition. It's all about tradition. As I'm Rabbi, I'm curious because you mentioned Sharansky. How you think it's 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 uh, got him kind of screwed up uh, when he was only reading uh, Torah? I mean, he was taking everything literally. I mean, that's yes, what you. Yes, yes, yes. I don't remember now, but I remember to read this book, and he had things that he never did, figured it out until he came among Jews and he realized what it means. What it means. Okay. What it, I mean, not that he actually did, but uh, other things because I don't know how much he knew, but. Uh, how much he had the opportunity to do, but I think I'm almost sure that there are certain things he did it wrong because he didn't understand, he didn't know how to do it because he read from the Bible, but he didn't really know how, what is the meaning of it. So he used potato for the film. I don't think he used potato for the There's actually a story about a Hussie that was in jail on Hanukkah and he used the potato and he found oil, a little bit of, of uh, margarine, and he put the margarine inside the potato and a piece of uh, clotting, and he light the candle, the first one candle, the first candle of Hanukkah. Okay. But uh, no, I don't think he used potato. But I remember from years and years ago, I read the story. I remember that certain things he didn't understand correct. And later he laughed about it. Okay, okay um, uh, Barry, you want to continue? Therefore? Barry? Okay. Um, Steve, you continue. Therefore, Rashi emphasizes his question, where did they get acacia wood in the desert? Meaning all the items listed needed to be available among the Israelites themselves without the need to search and obtain them from other sources. This brought Rashi to his question, where did they get the acacia wood in the desert? He therefore came to the conclusion that Jacob foresaw through divine inspiration that the Israelites were destined to build a tabernacle in the desert. And he therefore brought cedars to Egypt and planted them and directed his children to take them along when they would leave Egypt. Very good. Now comes to the explanation why, why he mentioned the name of the rabbi. You continue. Being a source of comfort to Israel, the Rebbe. A seasoned student will ask further, why was it so necessary for Jacob, our forefather, to bring and plant cedars in Egypt for the sake of a tabernacle 210 years later? Rashi hints to an answer by citing the source of his commentary, Rabbi Tanhuma. Tanhuma stems from the word Tanhumim, which means consolation. Comfort. Go ahead. Rabbi Tanhuma understood that Jacob's inspiration to plant acacia wood was a form of consolation for the people of Israel. When the Israelites were mired in the Egyptian exile, enslaved, persecuted, and their children put to death, they recalled Jacob's promise of redemption and drew inspiration from the sight of cedar wood, which he had personally brought and planted with the vision that they would leave Egypt and build a tabernacle in the desert. In other words, the Israelites in the desert could have obtained the acacia for the tabernacle some other way. But to, be a source, but to be a source of consolation to the Jewish people, Jacob was compelled 
to bring along those cedars, plant them in Egypt, and instruct his children to take them along on their return trip. Thus, throughout their entire period of subjugation in Egypt, they were able to gaze at those cedars and feel hopeful. Those cedars symbolized their future redemption. Okay, okay, okay. I want to tell you what's going on. What the Rebbe is saying is something amazing. Rabbi Tanhuma comes in the world, Tanhumi means comfort. Rabbi Tanhuma said, I tell you why, why Jacob did it. Jacob knew that the Jewish people are going into, a, into an exile. It's going to come terrible days. And they will need something to, some comforting, something to hold on to. You can imagine a child, you know, there were 80 years of slavery. That was terrible deals. A child comes to his father, tell him, Dad, we will never come out from here. We will never go. He says, yes, we have a story. Jake, in the name of Jacob, that one day God will take us out from Egypt. He said, no, forget about that. Everybody tells me the same story. It will never take place. His father takes him, he tells him, it's not just a story. Come, I'll take you to a, to a garden. I'll show you trees that Jacob, our great grandfather, planted in Egypt, bought from Israel for the sake, you know, for what sake? To build a temple that one day we're going to go out from Egypt and we will be needed to build a temple for God, for the God of Israel. And we're going to use this education. It was a tangible a reality, it's something, a proof. You can something to touch it, all done to it. It's not a story, it's something real. And this gives a, a child a comfort. This is a real thing. My mother tells me every time she used to sit in the 50s and the 60s, she used to sit in Russia and say, to say to each other, may Hashem help Moshiach will come and will come out from Russia. They're going out from Russia was as, as uh, Moshiach was more, it was a more realistic reality than going out from Russia. Hmm. Hmm. That our Jews in, the, in, in Egypt, before they knew about Moshiach, how they survived the exile, how they, Jacob didn't just want them to, to have them believe in a story. They had the stories. They, they used to do every Shabbat, you know, they used to rest on Shabbat in the desert. J Moses walked out a deal with uh, Jacob, with Pharaoh. He told him, you know, these people, they cannot walk a whole, uh, every day. They have nothing to look forward to the slaves. Give them a day off. Which day? He said, okay, good idea. He says, every seventh day, it was a Shabbat. And the Shabbat, on Shabbat, the Jewish people used to come together, the Medrash says, and they used to read from the, from the, from the stories, they had like, like uh, Megillus, like sc uh, scrolls. They used to read from it what they heard from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, that these stories gave them the strength to survive. Because in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was written that God, will, they will go to a foreign land and be slaves there, and one day they'll come out. That gave them the strength. This is one thing, read stories. But then here it was a physical, tangible thing. He was so sure that one day they'll go out from Egypt, that they, he, he, he brought from Israel occasion okay, replanted them in Egypt and told his children, gave them an order, when you leave Egypt, take the wood with you because I'm so sure you'll need it to build a temple. You know, there is Jews that they have such a strong belief in Moshiach that they have, a, they, it's written about great rabbis, they had a suit hanging in the closet, a ready clean suit 
to go to greet the Moshiach when Moshiach comes. That's how it was the fate that Moshiach is coming. That's what he says here. Um, Rob, you want to continue? This is, this is a message. This is a message of inspiration for our exile as well. We too live in the darkness of exile and our own limitations in a spiritual desert, a place of snakes, scorpions, and thirst. This is doubly true in the final moments before the final redemption. Yet we are told by Rabbi Tanhuma, the consoler of the Jewish people, that we shouldn't be intimidated by our situation. The ultimate goal is to build a tabernacle for God in the desert, to transform the spiritual desert into a sanctuary for God, a dwelling place for God in our world. And then we will merit the rebuilding of a physical sanctuary, the third holy temple. You know, we can relate to it in our, in our days so much. You know, it looks like we are in a pandemic that doesn't see the end of it. There is this variant and another variant and another variant and another variant. And you don't see the end of this disaster. And many people getting depressed and giving up and going crazy. And that's what Judaism is all about. Don't lose it. If, it, if there is bad days, all done, all done to the occasion wood, because the bad days will move on, will we'll, we'll go out. We will overcome the bad days. It's going to be better days. Now I want to share with you, let's read the source number four. Um, uh, um, Michael, you want to read it? When Russia departs from his usual custom and includes the source of his teaching, it's for a specific reason. The name of the sage sheds light on some element of understanding the literal reading of the text. You see, there is in Judaism a concept. Your name says a lot. The name of the rabbi who is doing it. For example, I give an example. We learned that I think a week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. We learned about Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah, there were two prophets. Jeremiah brought the bad news of the destruction of the temple. Isaiah brought the good news of the final redemption. That's going to be good days. Isaiah was actually before Jeremiah. He, he prophesied about the good days before Jeremiah actually prophesied on the, on the quick days, the bad days. I, Jeremiah prophesied on the destruction of the first temple. Isaiah prophesied on the future um, temple, second temple, third temple that Moshiach will come. Now in the name, in Ibu, Jeremiah is Yirmiyahu. The word Mar is inside the word, is, is in the word. Mar means bitter. He gave bitter news. He gave bitter uh, messages. He was the prophet of, of Tzores, of doom, if you want. Isaiah in Ibu comes to the word Yeshua. Yeshua means salvation. He told us the story of salvation, of good stories. That we see it all over the Bible and the Talmud that we learn from the name of the person about his message. For example, Miriam, it was the it was a Moses' sister. Why she's called Miriam? Because she was born during the time of uh, of uh, of when, when the when the when when the Jewish people suffered. It was Mar, it was very bitter, and Miam means water. She was born during the time that they throw Jewish babies into the water. That's why her name is Mar, Miriam. We're, we're, uh, and that every name has a meaning. Now I'll tell you a story. There is a fellow I think. Okay. Um, Oleg, you want to read? This is a story of uh, Rabbi Meir who, 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 learned, uh, who learned the meaning of every, of every name. What, 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 he, 
to learn the meaning of names of people. Rabbi Meir, uh, uh, Rabbi Meir, uh, Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Yossi were traveling together. Rabbi Meir would analyze names and therefore determine people's nature. But Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi would not. When they arrived, <coughs> arrived at the location, they looked for lodging and were giving it, given it. They asked the innkeeper, what is your name? He responded, Kidor. Rabbi Meir thought, his name indicates he is a wicked person. For the verses states, for uh, they are generation Kidor of upheaval. There is a verse in the Bible that says that Kidor, kidor Tubor, this generation is a bad generation. Then because the guy's name was Kidor, Rabbi Meir says, this guy is uh, fishing. I cannot trust him. Just because he compared his name to something it's written in the Bible. Go ahead. Before Shabbat, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi uh, entrusted their purses to, to him, but Rabbi Meir did not. Instead, he placed it on the grave uh, of the innkeeper's father. The father appeared to his son in a dream and said, Go take the purse's place at my head. The next day, the innkeeper said to the rabbis, this is what I saw in my dream. They said to him, dreams during twilight on Shabbat evening have no meaning. Rabbi Meir went and guarded his money all that day and then took it. You hear the story? He had a dream. The two rabbis gave the money to the innkeeper. They trusted them. Rabbi Meir did not trust him. He put the money on the father of the, the, of the, of the innkeeper's father's grave. He thought nobody will go there to find the money. He had a dream. The innkeeper had a dream that his father, that his father comes to him and tells him, go find the money over there in my grave. He asked the rabbis, they told him, don't worry about it. He didn't go there. But Rabbi Meir went there to make sure that nobody touches his money. He couldn't touch it too because it's Shabbat. He guarded it until Shabbat was over, and then he touched it. And then he took it. He took it with him. Continue. The next day, the next day, they said to the innkeeper, "Give us our purses." He denied receiving them. Rabbi Meir said to his colleagues, "Why didn't you analyze the name?" They responded, "Why didn't you tell us?" He said to them, "I said one should be suspicious, but I did. Uh, but did I say?" that the name establishes his character with certainty. <clears throat> they brought the innkeeper to a store and plied him with wine. They noticed uh, lentils on his mustache. So they went and gave it as a sign of he to his wife, saying that her husband had instructed that she returns the purses and had provided them with the details of his most recent meal as a sign of their of their authenticity. They took their purses and went. The innkeeper then killed his wife out of anger. Okay. <laughs> interesting story. story. <laughs> yeah, interesting story. The story is, he, they came, they went, all three rabbis traveled to summer. They had stopped by innkeeper for Shabbat. They cannot travel on Shabbat. The two guys trusted him and gave him the money. He says his name is Kido. Kido in the Bible is a bad connotation. It means under a generation. Kido tapuchot ema. It's a bad. It's a. It's a. It's a bad generation. It means that this guy is a bad guy just by his name. 
Rabbi Meir didn't trust them with the money. They trust them with the money. He stole the money. He denied. After Shabbat, he denied. He says, you never gave me money. They gave him to drink. They were able to find out, give a sign that he has something that he ate the same day. They came to the wife. He says, your husband says to give the money back. What the story tells us, he gave him the money back. The husband was such a terrorist that he killed his wife because she gave the money. But, but, but the story tells us that Rabbi Meir used to teach, used to learn from a person's name, his meaning. The Rabbi was very big on that, to tell people about the name. This is your name, that's the meaning of your name. You should do this, you should do many, obviously always in a good way. But, but uh, the idea that the name, that's why the Rabbi learned Tanchuma. Why is Rashi bringing the name of the rabbi you taught us, Rabbi Tanchuma? Because Tanchuma comes in the word Nenachem, to comfort. You know, why Noah? Noah is comes to debate Noah. Noah, it was a good time. Because when Noah came, Noah taught the world to do something good. He created new machines to plow the, the earth. Noah brought good to the world. That's why it's called Noah. And there is many, many examples for it. The name Moshe, we all know, it was Moshe, it was taken out from the water, right? That's why it's called Moshe. And many other names. Now there is one more place in another place in the Bible that we see another way of comforting that the Jewish people had a tangible thing that was given the bottom comfort. Uh, um, Michael, you didn't have a chance to read uh, more. Go ahead, read the number, source number six. I'm not sure he's still in. Uh, yeah, I, think. We, I am in. Okay. When Jacob realized he would soon die, he called for his son Joseph. If you really want to do me a kindness, he said, place your hand on my thigh, act towards me with the truth and kindness, and do not bury me in Egypt. Let me die with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me, bury me, bury me in their grave. I will do as you say, replied Joseph. Right? Just Jacob wanted to be buried in Israel. Continue. Uh, Olga, you want to continue? Um, Joseph said to his close family, I'm dying. God is sure to grant you special providence and bring you out of, his, of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph then bought the Isra mm. uh, bound the Israelites by an oath. When God grants you this special providence, you must bring me uh, my remains out of this place. Joseph died at the age of 110 years. He was uh, embalmed and placed in a tomb in Egypt. See, Joseph did not choose to be taken to Israel. He told them, when you are living, then took me, take me with you, right? Um, Steve, you want to continue? Thank you. Why Joseph was buried in Egypt? The conclusion of Genesis reads, Joseph died at the age of 110 years. He was embalmed and placed in a tomb in Egypt. This seems to raise a basic question even for a young student. At the beginning of the Torah portion, we read that, jo that Jacob told Joseph, do not bury me in Egypt. Let me lie with my fathers and bury me in their grave. Clearly, there were two reasons for his request. First, he wanted to be interred with Abraham and Isaac. Second, he did not want to lie in Egypt, the most decadent society. Yet the final passage seems to emphasize the very opposite about Joseph. He was placed in a tomb in Egypt. He was not buried in the cave of Machpelah and not even in the land of Israel, 
of all places, he was buried specifically in Egypt. And he was even embalmed and placed in a tomb, emphasizing that he was there to stay. At the conclusion of the reading, the congregation calls out, Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazak, Venis Chazak, to be strong, be strong, and be strengthened. The question arises, what strength and inspiration are we to derive from the fact that Joseph was buried in Egypt? What's so exciting about it? And Jacob was didn't want to be buried in Egypt. Joseph, maybe he had no choice, but where is the strength? Where is the comforting? We finished the old book of Genesis. It was the good news. Joseph was buried in Egypt. That's the good news. Where is the good, what, what is the positive thing here? Because there is a rule in Judaism that every book, everything we finish, we finish on a good note, usually. And we try to finish on a good note. Then when the Torah is written, the first book to finish, must be there is something, a good message, a comforting message in this story. Rab, continue. Joseph remained with his brethren. The answer lies in the next verse, the first verse of Exodus. And these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Exodus begins with the story of the Egyptian subjugation and enslavement of the Israelites. Although the Israelites had arrived in Egypt earlier, as described in the Torah portion of Ayigash, they had lived comfortably in Goshen, the most fertile land in the region, where they had thrived and flourished. Only in Exodus, after the demise of Joseph and his brothers and the entire generation, were the Israelites subjugated, enslaved, and persecuted. Before the onset of this terrible period, the Israelites needed an extra dose of encouragement and inspiration. And that came in the form of Joseph's burial in Egypt. Joseph, the quintessential provider of the Jewish people, remained with them in their exile, embalmed and preserved in a tomb awaiting the day of their salvation. Therefore, after reading that he was embalmed and placed in a tomb in Egypt, we announce, be strong, be strong, and be strengthened. Before heading into exile, the Jewish people draw strength Sorry. Uh, to overcome their hardships from the knowledge that they are not alone in their plight, Joseph remains together with them. And here is the same idea. Joseph said, a person is asking, yeah, you're making me a story. One day we'll go out from Egypt. You tell them, Joseph did not mind to stay here. And he made his kids to be, to his brothers to swear to him that one day they'll take him out from Egypt. He did not, he, did, he could ask to be buried in Israel. He didn't ask for it. He didn't say, oh, I have no choice. I'll stay here and finish. He says, I'm telling you why I'm ready to be buried in exile because I know for sure that one day you'll be taken out from exile and you will be able to take me back to Israel to be buried there. Then the Jewish people had two, two tangible proofs that one day they'll be going out from Egypt. The first proof was... Peter's. The, the cedar, cedar's uh, uh, wood. And the second proof was the, the, the burial, the, the remains of Joseph, the bones, Joseph's bones. That we know in Judaism that from, uh, you need two witnesses for everything to be true. There were two things to, to prove the, the Jewish people. It was tangible things, not just a story. What's the lesson to us? I think the lesson to us is, first of all, I must tell you, I was in the Rebbe said these two talks, I was there. He said the two talks in a different between four or five weeks. In, in, in the first time it was Parshat Vayichi, the end of Genesis, he said the point that Joseph stayed in Egypt to give strength to the Jewish people. And then he spoke about the Keisha wood and he says the reason why Jacob slept it from Israel was to bring strength to the Jewish people in the time of exile. 
because and this is also the explanation why the Chabad rabbis are buried in exile. The rabbi chose to be buried in America. The previous rabbi in America. His father, the fifth Chabad rabbi, is buried in Rostov. The fourth Chabad rabbi and the third Chabad rabbi are, um, yeah, and the fourth and, and, the, and the third Chabad rabbi are buried in Lubavitch. The second Chabad rabbi is buried in Nezhin. And, uh, and one is in, uh, and one, the first one is buried, uh, I forgot the name, I'm getting old, I forgot the name of the place. The point is they are spread all over. They did not, they could ask, they could afford to be buried in Israel. Yes, they could afford to. They could afford to be, the, the rabbis should, the, the Hasidim should take him to be buried like Jews or throughout history. They choose to be buried in exile because they believe we are in exile and one day we'll all together go out from exile. In Rostov, it was a whole story there that the, the, the government destroyed the cemetery. And they, want, and, and they had to go, and they had to go to, 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 they had to move him from one place to another. So after 10 years that he was buried there. Or they didn't move him somewhere else, he's buried in Rostov until today. The Rebbe's father is buried in Alma Ata, in another place in, in Kazakhstan. It's a whole other who knows that because they believe that they have to stay with the Jewish people wherever they are. They learned it from Joseph. They learned it from Moses who was buried in the desert. But what the lesson to us is, you know, many times you tell our children stories, but you need to do tangible things. Judaism is about tangible things. Don't tell the people about matzah, eat matzah. Don't speak about lighting candles, actually light the candles. Don't talk about film, actually do it. The point is Judaism is not just a story. Judaism needs tangible things. We need to do it. And that's what it's all about. My dear friend, my very dear friend, I thank you very much for joining me. Oh, yeah. And uh, we'll see you next week. Rabbi, quick question. Where yeah, Joseph sure. is buried? Uh, where he's buried? Now in Nablus. It's called Shechem. Oh, Nablus. Okay, Nablus. Okay. And it's not, actually, not under uh, Israeli authority today. But people sneak out and they go to Shechem. Many people constantly go to Shechem, even it's dangerous and even this, people go to his gravesite. But he, the Jew, even look, Moses took out his bones. Moses never made it to Israel. The Jewish people later after Moses carried Joseph's bones and buried it in, in Shechem. And he, was, and he was wandering with the Jews for four years with his coffin. It wasn't like an easy trip. It wasn't like they took him, put him on a plane, sent him to Israel. He was for 40 years with the dead Jews in the desert. And only with the end of the land of Israel, he entered. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you for joining uh, and for listening and for week. participating. God bless you. Bye. Bye.